that's the part that excites me the most is what will the sport look like in five years? So, you know, maybe Matt and Tia are continuing to compete five years now at the same level. If history repeats itself, you know, they will have, you know, they'll have a, a lifespan or a curve, you know, in their careers, and there will be a new class of athletes in two, three, five, seven years. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Justin Berg, General Manager of the CrossFit Games. For the better part of a decade, Justin has been a major driving force behind CrossFit's growth as a competitive sport. And he's involved in almost every aspect of the games, from organizing the physical events to athlete experience, media, streaming, and more. Justin gives some rare insight into the inner workings of the games, including the inside scoop on the massive shifts in qualification and structure the event has undergone in recent years. We also talk about the organization's work with media and live streaming, along with what fans can expect from future iterations in years to come. Also, I want to take a second to say we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. A very special guest today on the Barbend podcast is Justin Berg and Justin, it's difficult for me to sum up the number of responsibilities that you have with the CrossFit Games, but it's something that I think a lot of folks might not be familiar with, especially your work behind the scenes. So I'm going to start off by kicking it over to you, if that's okay, to give folks a little background on how you became involved with the CrossFit Games and what your role has become over the past decade, really. Sure. Well, uh, I'm fortunate. I've had a, a long history with the CrossFit Games. Uh, I was hired, uh, the very first CrossFit Games I went to were in 2009 at the Ranch in Aromas. And, uh, and I came, I had just left a career working in sports technology. Um, and I had an undergraduate degree in sport management and had been working in the sport industry, particularly with media and broadcast for the last you know, five years. And I quit because I wanted to open a CrossFit gym and have a bigger impact in the world and very quickly realized that there was an opportunity to serve with my unique experience and education uh, on, the, on the game side. And so I was uh, hired uh, in 2010, and I was at that point the, the first employee that was dedicated only to working on the CrossFit Games. So the other people at that point, you know, primarily Dave Castro and Tony Budding, and many others actually, uh, were pitching in on it, a single event that took place once a year and it was becoming a lot of additional work. You know, in that year in 2010, there were, I think, 48 or so licensed events that took place all over the world. And so trying to synchronize those to feed into a single event was the, the atmosphere that I came into. And that was the very first year, including also an interesting first year when we uh, moved from the ranch to Carson, California, and, you know, had our first soiree into, uh, you know, traditional cable television. That first year transitioning from from the ranch, which really had the feel in many ways of kind of a backyard brawl into something that's under the lights, it's in a professional sports arena, 
what was that transition like? And looking back at it, I know that you're someone who likes to look forward, maybe more than look back, but what were some of the things that ultimately surprised your team regarding that transition? I think the entire the entire event was just so different. So, you know, the ranch was such a magical place and it was, you know, uh, kind of a little incubation period where, you know, people were doing this from all over the world and they were showing up. That was unexpected in the first and second years. And then other people wanted to host events and call them CrossFit events. And so we licensed all these, uh, you know, regionals and sectional competitions. And uh, so when we, you know, in 2010 had all of these events and they were feeding in to the CrossFit games, man, it was just, uh, it was wild because we hadn't really uh, operated in a professional venue before. So the event was, was run well and, you know, the competition programming and the athlete experience was all just nascent at that point. Um, but it was a, it was kind of a step up in a lot of categories. So the step up with media was a step up with our event planning. And fortunately that was an area where I could apply to myself and add unique value to the team because I've been working in a lot of professional touring sports. So golf and tennis was where I had spent a lot of my time in the preceding five years. And so the, the tennis center at StubHub was one of the areas that's like, Hey, I know how these types of venues work. And so, uh, but really that first year was, it was a lot of people coming and contributing to the event from a lot of different CrossFit uh, areas. And so we have people coming from Florida, from overseas, from Texas, all over the place to bring what they had. So some guys had, you know, event operations experience, some people had worked in concerts and were CrossFitters. Other people were first responders and, you know, they worked in fire service. And so we started kind of laying the foundation for the type of people that could respond well uh, to producing this type of an event. And it was all homegrown. So it wasn't, you know, a bunch of, you know, call it industry people or, you know, entertainment people and media people that came in. They were crossfitters. They came and we created a bespoke event um, that was really, you know, kind of the first foundation we built on for several years afterwards in Los Angeles. That transition from 2009 to 2010 was obviously significant going from the ranch to the StubHub Center. Are there any other years that in your mind as more, are marked as big transition points for the CrossFit Games from one season to the next or one year to the next? Yeah. Um, you know, I think everybody looks to last year's maybe the biggest transition that we've made. Um, as a company, I think from CrossFit's perspective, the biggest change that I saw was from 2010 until 2011. And so in 2010, we had all of these events. I may have misspoke earlier. It was 2010 that we had regionals and sectionals. You know, so the sectionals were the broad end of the funnel that anybody could sign up and participate. The best athletes from sectionals went to regionals. The best athletes from regionals were invited to the CrossFit Games. And so at that point, the CrossFit Games only operated one event. So, um, you know, CrossFit Inc., only owned and operated a single event. We licensed all these others. And at that point, it was a really challenging proposition. So a lot of people around the world that were running these events were individual gym owners, and they were doing it almost out of a labor of love and a sense of duty. People wanted to participate. They wanted to provide that opportunity. You know, but it was low stakes, and, and people were complaining about how much financial risk they had to take on because they didn't know if tickets were viable. There was no real sponsorship at that time, there was a couple companies that were dabbling in, but there wasn't a significant revenue stream there. And there was no media revenue or income there. So it was all just really early. 
Um, so Greg made the decision that it was not a scalable thing to lean on affiliates to just out of their own pocket produce these competitions. And in 2011, decided to do two really big things. One was launch an online worldwide competition called the CrossFit Games Open um, that would use you know, affiliates all over the world could participate and anybody that had, you know, 20 bucks and an internet connection could submit their scores. And so it would cast the broadest net from a competition standpoint, far more broad than the sectionals and regionals model could have. And this was the, oh, and we'll also do this portion. Oh, and we're going to own and operate 17 events around the world uh, as regionals on CrossFit's, uh, you know, P&L. And so it was wild. And I remember working for the company and the open was what got everybody's attention. And it was the talking point, but going internally, Hey, we're going to produce our own 17 events. Um, that's a lot, you know, in Seoul, Korea and Buenos Aires or Bogota at the time, uh, Cape town, South Africa, Europe, all over the United States. Um, that was a lot. And so it was a lot in one year where we went from one owned and operated to the following year we did, I think 19. So it was, you know, 17 regionals, Plus the CrossFit Games, I think we had an exhibition that we, we produced as well. Uh, but that's a big, from 1 to 19 is an enormous increase in kind of event logistics and planning responsibility. So um, that was a big one. Speaking of event logistics, obviously the new home of the CrossFit Games, it's, it's no longer in California. It's Madison, Wisconsin. And I remember it was uh, quite the quite the treat to follow the team along and try and predict. I know there were a lot of predictions online as to where the games would ultimately end up when you were going through that selection process, finding a new home for the games and a new venue. When it comes to actually getting set up at the games, it could be what it took at the StubHub Center. It could be what it takes in Madison these days at the Alliance energy center how long before the games do you have boots on the ground and what does your setup look like personally in the run-up to the games i mean are you there a month ahead of time two months ahead of time are you kind of going back and forth between hq and madison what does that look like you know it really varies by year uh so we do have a remote management system. So we don't go in, we don't have a full-time office in Madison and very few professional events maintain full-time offices, especially if they, if they tour around. Um, we've got a team that will go in usually about three or four weeks ahead of time. I think one of the earliest groups that come in is actually uh, road. So they'll start delivering tractor trailers full of the equipment necessary for the games. Uh, and they're some of the first people to arrive on site just to park trucks and get their um, you know, to get their massive operation kind of pre-installed there. Um, but we'll have a team that goes inside, you know, three and a half, four weeks early, and they start building the floors and building the bleachers and overseeing the teams to do that. Um, myself personally, uh, you know, Dave and I usually come in um, with at least one or, you know, seven days to 10 days in advance of the advance week. Um, so we're usually coming in the weekend or the Monday of advance week, the week before the CrossFit Games. And that's to, you know, oversee from my standpoint, making sure that we're building what we think we're building, be able to manage any kind of unique challenges that we have at the event, whether that's predicted weather or if there's, uh, you know, complications that pop up you know, when your allergy blooms, when your it's weather, um, you know, in other years, it's just maybe getting on site early because we want to test some unique workouts. And so you know, we've had a unique apparatus that we build that you can't test offsite. You have to build it there and test that thing on that floor with high, highly capable athletes. And so, um, you know, we try to get in early enough that we can do all that advanced testing to make sure that it's the best possible 
athlete experience, you know, when the, when the lights are on and, and the clock's going. Including Rogue's team and including volunteers, uh, judges, how many people will be involved in, in a rough sense? I know you probably don't have exact numbers. Will be involved in putting on the 2020 CrossFit Games in Madison when it comes to people on the ground actually having some physical interaction with the venue and the event? Yeah, it's uh, that's a great question. So we start with like the people that are the most unique and the highest contributors are, are volunteer corps. And so we'll use, you know, between five and 600 people on most given days. And so we might have a staff of, and it varies by year and by competition format and by number of days of competition. Uh, but you could have between 500 and 800 people who are actively involved in producing the, the competition and the spectator environment. And on top of that, you layer in, you know, there's a, a core of guys that we call black shirts who are responsible for leading the other leaders. Um, and those are the exemplary guys from all over the world um, with a bunch of different cultural backgrounds that are all, you know, CrossFitters and kind of high skill leaders. And then you have all of the support people. And so, you know, we have many different sponsors that come on site to try to increase the event experience to make it better and more unique, make it a CrossFit kind of mecca Disneyland type of experience for people who are, you know, into the things that CrossFitters are into. Um, and those are the parts that are hard to track. So you don't know how many people those guys bring to help make their unique little corner of the venue come to life. Um, but, you know, you're, you're at a very high number. So, you know, 800 to 1,000 people are, you know, responsible for making the event special. And, uh, you know, it all starts from the inside. It starts from inside the, the competition floor, and then it expands out in concentric bands and more people are involved, the broader you go. We've obviously seen a lot of changes in games qualification and how athletes are reaching the CrossFit Games and qualifying over the last few years. The the Open being a more direct route for some athletes, sanctionals competition being introduced. How has preparation for the games changed as a result of the different qualification system that we're seeing now? Well, I think it's uh, one of the unique aspects is that many more people are involved in the process. And so, you know, the, there's been an increased emphasis on the open. And I think that that's, uh, it was, it's awesome. You know, the, the open is a direct qualifier for national champions. Uh, it has an increased legitimacy in, you know, countries where, you know, if you're in Argentina or, uh, you know, Ecuador is somewhere, uh, anywhere that you're there, that is the qualifying test for your national champions. And so there's in-country races that sometimes get missed by people in North America. You go, hey, you know, Matt Fraser is really good, but, you know, the national champion race in the United States isn't the biggest thing going on. Um, but, you know, for Latin America, Europe, other places in the world, um, those are highly contested races with a lot on the line. And so validating those athletes and making sure the competition standards are, you know, increasing for people at the top of the leaderboard, that they're validating their performance well so that they can have claim that they are the national champion and that you can stand behind that claim is, uh, is important. And so that's been an increased emphasis. And then, you know, there's been a lot more emphasis actually, I think on the games. Um, so without uh, the typical, you know, the schedule previously, when we owned and operated all of the regionals, where that we would focus on the open. And as soon as the open was done, you're right into regional advanced planning. And because all of the regionals were the same, it became, hey, here's the programming. Now, how do you make that same cookie cutter approach work for you know, 17 events or eight events or nine events, depending on the year? And then once you were done with that, then you advance the programming for the games. 
Um, so now, and you know, programming is is Dave's you know unique area, and he's you know best in the world at it. He takes a lot of pride in it. He's very good at it. Um, and so I think Dave is especially more focused a little earlier in the process in you know creating the test, you know, being able to lay out the competition. Um, and last year was a little bit out of sync for everybody. You know, it was a new framework. We had the open occurring twice in the same calendar year to get on this new trajectory and the new go forward calendar. Um, but now this year, I think there's more time, and you know, we're using that time to our advantage to do things in sequence and do things a little earlier um, where possible. Well, we, you've seen that we've seen that with the with the open and a heavier emphasis on national champions, and then last year at the games with the parade of nations. And cross, it's always been an international sport, or at least it's been an international sport since very early on in its evolution. But it seems like there are multiple touch points throughout the year where the international nature of the sport is being more highlighted, and one could say celebrated, especially at the games. Is that something that you think you all will continue to have an emphasis on? And can we see, will we expect to see more of an emphasis on those, you know, national champions representation from different nations? If we are going to see more of an emphasis, how exactly might that manifest? Sure. I think we're on the track that people can expect us to be on in the future. And so, like you mentioned, the games has never not been international. So we had international competitors in the early years. You had international champions, you know, almost right off the bat. Well, right off the bat. So you had James Fitzgerald, you know, won the very first CrossFit Games. You've got, you know, Miko Salo, Amy Thor's daughter, and other kind of early winners. Um, so this is not a new thing that, you know, it was an international sport. The internationally inclusive aspect is new. And so, you know, guaranteeing spots to people from countries that at the beginning may not be at the same standard as some of the top countries like the United States, Canada, Iceland, Australia, um, but creating opportunities for people in some of the smaller countries that are still developing and growing in CrossFit and their athletes are building experience and stacking capacity. The consequence to that is really exciting. Um, at the same time, having an inclusive event plan where people can stand up individual competitions, they can co-license the name CrossFit, and they can create their own direct qualifier, you know, from, you know, Europe or, you know, South Africa and other places around the world. Um, that becomes really exciting as well. So they have to be independent events, but then having the opportunity to be part of the CrossFit plan, be part of the CrossFit Games, you know, season, um, I think is a really interesting the consequence of that plus the consequence of adding credibility and leaderboarding aggressively within those other countries, I think has a really explosive potential in the future, both for the business side and for the development of you know a whole new class of athletes over the next five to 10 years. I want to talk a little bit about media coverage of the games and accessibility to viewers who might not be there in person. I remember trying to watch the 2009 CrossFit Games. I was in I was in college, and I remember trying to find coverage on the old CrossFit Games website, and you could find bits and pieces. Social media wasn't what it is today, so you weren't getting updates from Instagram because, hey, that didn't exist yet. The athletes weren't posting to their accounts with millions of followers then as the games evolved and moved to Carson, you're starting to see a bit more mainstream coverage. You're seeing broadcasts on ESPN. You're seeing broadcasts eventually on Facebook Live. There are these different phases of how you watch the CrossFit Games and interact with that from afar. What 
do you think the future holds? And I, I will give context that last year was very interesting for, for me as someone who works in media. You know, Barband.com was one of a number of third-party broadcasters for the CrossFit Games, which was such an interesting and cool opportunity. And frankly, if I'm, if I'm being honest, something I thought would never be in the cards for an outlet, like, for an independent outlet outlet like ours. It was something that really, I think, changed the game or at least changed the experience last year. It wasn't without its snags. What is the CrossFit Games spectator experience, especially the digital experience and broadcast experience, going to look like moving forward? Yeah, I think uh, it's going to take the foundation that we established in 2019, and it's going to layer on top of that. One of the important parts of our media strategy last year was that it would be an inclusive and not exclusive media plan. And what we had been doing previously was self-producing all of the content. And the effect of that was that many people who were outside, so they were third parties like yourself and others, didn't have an opportunity to have the most select coverage. And instead, CrossFit was responsible for producing every highlight, producing every documentary, producing every behind-the-scenes interview, and self-funding all of those things as well, but also creating a, a pretty narrow perspective on the entire sport. Um, I think it was good. I think it was entertaining. I think our fans really enjoyed that. And we did it for a while. So it wasn't a mistake. It was something that we did for a long period. Um, but now, especially with more than half of the affiliates that do CrossFit being outside the United States. And, you know, for the first uh, 11 years that I've worked here, 10 years that I worked for CrossFit, we only transmitted the CrossFit games in one language, English. And in just one year, by changing our focus from being English only, everything in one place, uh, and inviting other people to participate, not just other English commentary like yourself and others, uh, but for allowing and in fact encouraging and inviting others to come take CrossFit's worldview, which we still produce in CrossFit funds, and then freely giving that to others so that they can add their own French, Italian, German, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, uh, Spanish commentary, and be able to serve that content, not just on our platforms, but on your platforms. So you can have the CrossFit Games official world feed with graphics and scoring and timing on your page for your audience and serve it in the way that makes most sense. It's a really interesting, uh, and I think something that we're very proud of, uh, policy going forward, the near-term correction is that you go, hey, it was nice when everything was in one place and under one umbrella. What I think people missed was, hey, it was still, if you want to watch in English, I challenge people to go back and watch the CrossFit Games coverage in 2018 digitally and watch the 2019 CrossFit Games coverage digitally. Um, and if you go to Rogue Fitness and for benefit of Rogue and those, they did a terrific job. And what they did is they added commentary to the CrossFit Games world feed and they took it there. But what you don't see behind that is what was happening in Brazil, what was happening in other places in the world, other languages. But to go from one language to a dozen languages in a year is a big improvement. And I think that only continues to compound the effects of the national champions having direct qualification. You know, having, you know, instead of nine events like we ran in 2018, you know, having 28 events this year, um, you know, many of those around the world and restoring official CrossFit competition to regions of the world, we had to retreat from. Um, I think it's a really positive step. So it's all of these, you know, you can see it, it kind of merges into the same philosophy, which is creating opportunities for others to participate. CrossFit will do a core set of things. Uh, but there's many other things that the community brings and other outlets bring to 
shape it, especially the media coverage, the competition floor is going to be kind of sacred and holy. We're going to do a great job of what takes place on the competition floor and to lay claim to, you know, crowning the fittest man and fittest woman on earth. The spectator experience will control a lot at our event, but many other people with their events around the world will create their own spectator experiences and they'll create their own programming. Um, and then media outlets, again, will take that same thing and they'll cover the sport from different angles. And what's neat with CrossFit pulling back from some of those things, other people have stepped into that vacuum and they've presented multiple different offerings. The near-term consequence of that is some confusion about where do I go to get my particular type of content that will normalize over time as you know, different outlets choose what their angle will be and they try to do that well, including in different languages and the different audiences. Um, so it'll take some time to correct that, but we're already seeing there's not as big of a drop as I think people were concerned with. I think that Heber and Marston have produced uh, a documentary that's going to be really entertaining for people for this year. Um, they're great storytellers and they've taken the 2019 season, but for people that were concerned that I'm not going to have that entertainment content, um, CrossFit will not produce it, but it will be available. And other people have stepped into that vacuum for their own benefit. You know, and they've done a terrific job and they're good storytellers. And you know, I think a lot of people will be interested in that. So um, it's just creating more opportunities for other people to participate in this. And that's going to ultimately give the whole thing more, I think, you know, air to breathe and opportunity to succeed. Do you think that more, and you might not have the stat off the top of your head, so not to put you too much on the spot, did more people watch the CrossFit Games because of that in 2019 versus 2018, or did you sense an overall drop in viewership? Here's the thing. CrossFit's never really cared about that that much. Um, so we've always been digital first, and one of the unique things about digital is that when you keep everything underneath in one particular silo, you can have high confidence in your viewership numbers. As soon as you get yourself into other platforms and you have other partners, your confidence in the ratings and the viewership goes down. And so people make claims about how many people they think are going to watch. You know, like the FIFA World Cup is going to tell you that 3.5 billion people are going to watch the World Cup. Now, can they directly point to any other people? You know, yeah, but we know you're like, yeah, it's really big. But that's a bold claim that more than half the people on the face of the planet are going to watch the World Cup at some point. Um, but usually those claims are made for other purposes. And so it's not meant to be a, Hey, how healthy is the sport or, um, you know, anything like that. It's usually meant to sell advertising revenue. And that was never CrossFit's intent. You know, we've had a digital first approach, not because we were trying to monetize the digital to maximize that income. We took a digital first approach because we wanted to serve our content freely to people around the world. And so digital was the best tool to give it far and wide with as few barriers as possible. But we've always resisted putting things behind paywalls. That was one of the reasons we left ESPN was that ESPN required us, as part of our contract, in the United States to window the digital content on Watch ESPN, which was the equivalent now in more contemporary terms is ESPN+. Plus. And we weren't okay with that. We were not okay with people saying, hey, if I'm inside the United States, I have to pay to go to some platform to watch the CrossFit Games because it was a digital first, free-for-all, global perspective. Now, it was a correction year. We had to get ourselves onto the new track. What we're seeing is that we're going to be on platforms like we have been in the past. And we're no less attractive to broadcasters inside and outside the United States than we ever have been. Um, so I think it was a lot of things in a short period of time, but I think the... 
CrossFit rates really well, and it's because there's lots of CrossFitters and they talk about it really well. So we'll always be super strong on digital. And now CrossFit saying instead of CrossFit Inc. reading all the benefit, we're going to give that to others and let them be the distributors of that content uh, far and wide. And if you want to sell advertising on your feed, go for it. Have fun with it. Um, but take it and improve it and fundamentally make it right for your audience. And if you do that well, then we'll be stoked to continue serving you that content. What is the future of the CrossFit Games when it comes to working with sponsors? Because you talk about, you know, not necessarily focusing on selling ads for the CrossFit, for the benefit of CrossFit HQ or for the benefit of CrossFit Inc. That's not necessarily what your digital strategy is about, but we still have the sponsors. I mean, we know the title sponsors, we know the partners, we still see advertisements for companies that work with CrossFit and benefit CrossFit on a financial basis. What does the future hold when it comes to sponsors and brands working with CrossFit at the CrossFit games and being represented in that, in that capacity? Sure. Well, I mean, first we're really grateful. We've had a staple of people who have been with us for a while um, that are really, they're contributors to the sport. And so uh, as we've shifted to having different inventory available, um, you know, really the focus has not been, hey, how do we extract the most money from our sponsors? We've created a ceiling. And so our sponsors can't spend more than a certain amount of money with the CrossFit Games. So there's no che- there's a certain ceiling in the check that you can write with us. And it's not variable by platform. So it's not, hey, if you're a CBD company, we think that that's a highly, you know, explosively growing area. So we think it's worth three times more than the hand grip category. So the people that are there, they basically ante up to be a CrossFit Games sponsor. And then what we encourage them to do is spend more money than you have with us in other areas. So that's sponsoring other sanctionals, developing a, you know, a relationship with multiple athletes that can be ambassadors, um, creating good product that you can sample and serve for free to different people within the community. Um, but spend the remainder of your money, which is the bulk of the investment, you know, investing in other areas. So that's events, athletes, and you know, back into the community. Um, it's been a, a refreshing perspective for us. It's a little easier to administer, um, but also it makes it really easy where you go, when you come on site, everybody's kind of got a flat rate they've handed up. And then we want to create opportunities for sponsors who want to give more away to occupy more space. And so we've got a couple of things that are, we still got to iron out the paperwork, but could be, uh, new and really cool opportunities for fans of the CrossFit Games to walk away with stuff that is really cool. So if you get a big group of people who are planning to come to the CrossFit Games and they're relatively fit and they know how to apply their force well, um, they could be leaving with some like, like really, really cool stuff. Um, and, the, and the idea is to you know, create a unique experience, but also to be generous. You know, so we're you know, in some regards, kind of stewarding the money, not just in CrossFit's pockets, but like there's a ceiling and then everything else waterfalls back into the community, back into athletes and back into our uh, sanctioned and licensed events. Um, you know, and, and top of all the other things that these guys have to pay money, you know, all the other things that sponsors invest in. But um, we're not increasing our share. We've actually decreased our share of the total, you know, income available there. What is the vetting process or is there a vetting process for potential sponsors? You know, big company X or small company XYZ comes knocking at your door. Hey, I want to sponsor the CrossFit Games. Is there a, a process to make sure they're a company that you want to expose to the CrossFit community and help give access to the CrossFit community? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, without getting into too much detail, the, the first is that we're not for everybody. And we're unapologetic about that. Um, there's a lot of people that we talk to that call first CrossFit 
and say, hey, I want to sponsor the games. And one of the first questions is they only want to sponsor us and they don't want to be involved in anything else. And they only want access to affiliates. We go, hey, we're not the right investment. Um, we don't have that for sale. We don't sell email lists to all our affiliates so you can direct mail these guys. We're not doing that. We're not guaranteeing you any placement in our affiliated gyms. We have a set amount of inventory available, but the association with the CrossFit Games and where the community gathers uh, is a big opportunity for them to serve. So we look for people who are trying to contribute, not just financially in one place. Um, so I think if you look at our kind of cadre of people who are in that sponsorship and partnership realm, you would see companies that are invested in the community and not just in the CrossFit Games, but their investment is waterfalling into many other things as well. Um, but there are certain categories we just don't entertain. So like you're not going to see a McDonald's or a Gatorade or a, you know, a, a, another outside, you know, training authority come in and just go, Hey, we heard that you've got some spotlight available for sale. Can we buy it? Go, no, we try to reserve that for people who are contributors within the community and they've got a product or service that at least passes kind of a, you know, an overall inspection from us. And then we're not validating that like every product that goes out there is right for every CrossFitter. You know, CrossFit doesn't make any endorsements in order the games. Um, but we do try to make sure that if we're highlighting companies in the mind of, you know, CrossFit athletes and spectators at the games, um, that they're at least, you know, in line with our general kind of, you know, philosophy. Um, so we say no to a lot of people. That people people would be surprised how many no's we give, and instead say, "Hey, go somewhere else. You know, invest differently." But we're not going to be your outlet. Let's talk a little bit still on kind of the media exposure and exposure relevant to potential brands and partners. On that end, I want to talk a little bit about social media because you know. Our, uh, the on-again, off-again relationship between CrossFit and certain social media platforms and the CrossFit Games and certain social media platforms has been something that we've certainly written about on, at Barbend. It's something that the greater community has paid attention to. They're off Facebook. They're off Instagram. Well, now they're kind of back on Facebook. They're back on Instagram. Um, you know, we recently saw the CrossFit Games reactivate the the official Facebook page, reactivate the official Instagram page. What kind of spurred that, if anything, in particular? And, you know, will we expect to see CrossFit stay active on the, the CrossFit Games specifically stay active on those platforms moving forward? Yeah. Um, well, first, we've been on social media and we've been in a variety of different media platforms for as long as I've been involved. Uh, for a long time, we've kind of the term we used was we were platform agnostic. Um, and I do think that during the last, you know, couple of years, you know, 17, 18, leading into, you know, a lot of the changes that took place in 2019, uh, there was probably an overemphasis on, you know, counting things that didn't really, that didn't tell the whole picture. And so, uh, you know, producing content that had, you know, more likes or longer average view durations. And we were doing this, you know, we were looking at how do we, you know, uh, optimize studio content. You know, hey, how long does the show need to be so that you can get more people watching it the first time or get everybody watching through the end? Um, and so we were spending a lot of time and attention trying to do that well. Um, what was interesting about leaving social media was, you know, there's not a lot of outfits that would uh, choose to step back from a platform. And, you know, I actually give Greg and, you know, I think CrossFit should deserve some there's a positive aspect of this, which is going, Hey, if there's too much, you need to be able to step backwards. And I think Greg was highly focused on, you know, making sure that the health message was centerpiece to his whole organizational kind of media plan. Um, and that involves some corrections. I don't think that it was 
you know, necessarily intended to be a forever thing. You know, there's very few things that we do forever. CrossFit is a very responsive organization. You know, we respond to what's going on. And a lot of things don't change. You know, our philosophy on training, you know, squatting below parallel, you know, our position on nutrition is actually remarkably consistent for long periods of time. It's not like we were like, hey, we used to be high carbohydrate and now we're, you know, low carbohydrate. You're like, hey, there is a harmonizing principle behind this that is really, really consistent. Um, how we serve media and which platforms we choose to, you know, turn off or turn down over time uh, has been a secondary at best priority within the company. Um, so I think we, you know, we turned it off uh, and Greg did that for, you know, the purposes that he stated and we brought him back on. I think because it's one of a variety of different platforms that help us, you know, serve our purpose. And that's to, you know, tell people what's going on. Um, but also I think it was important not to, when we were producing a ton of content, uh, we had a large staff in place here at CrossFit Inc. and within the CrossFit Games department, whose responsibility was producing lots of content because we were shouldering the load for everybody. Because we blocked and we were exclusive to, you know, your outlet and other outlets and others, we said, hey, we need to do this. Well, we are the only ones. We need to serve all of this. So we need to have all the staff in the house to do that. Not unlike our event policies. So we ran every CrossFit competition for a span of years, you know, from 17 and then, you know, eight, nine events. You know, we had a staff appropriate to deliver owned and operated events. Well, as we licensed those events and we included outside media um, we're now more of a window. And so we can curate content that is, you know, unique perspectives, good perspectives, um, you know, and also different languages and reflecting different cultures. And we're now more of the portal or the window that we can share other people's information. Once we adjusted that track, going back on social media without being the primary producer, but instead being an amplifier of other people's content made a lot more sense. And so I think that's why, do I think it'll last forever? Who knows? The reality is 10 years from now, like who knows if we're going to be on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or, you know, we'll have virtual implants and just, you know, connect our thoughts. Like, I don't know. Um, but we'll be responsible to do that because we have real communities of people around the world. We have people doing this. We have athletes that are, you know, committed individuals and, uh, you know, we'll respond as appropriate. What excites you most about the future of the CrossFit Games and the other side of that coin? As someone who is so heavily involved and has been for so long in the growth and operations of the CrossFit Games, what gives you a little bit of trepidation or maybe occasionally keeps you up at night in the back of your mind when it comes to the future of the Games? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, that is an excellent question. And the thing that, uh, that gives you the pit in your stomach is also, in my mind, the thing that excites me the most, which is CrossFit has assumed we made a lot of changes. And we've planted a lot of seeds that are not planning to grow or bear fruit in a quarter or in a year. Um, inviting country champions from all over the world to come to the CrossFit Games. Some of them leave embarrassed or motivated. And then other people that didn't get to go to the Games saying, hey, I was fitter than that person and I should have been there. Um, there's going to be a consequence to that. So that's kind of level one inviting other people to cover the sport from around the world in their language and culturally appropriate for their audience, I think is exciting and risky because CrossFit declined money and we opened it up to other people. And then also, you know, moving into, you know, a period where we're willing to partner with more people, say yes to more different sponsors that have global reach. Um, there's a couple of things that if all of those things click, 
um, it creates a much larger opportunity for where we're going than it was before. It's hard to grow things that are owned and operated fast. And so, you know, if you were a franchise model, you know, it grows at a certain rate. When you have a license model, you have other people that are, you know, sharing in the responsibility and sharing in the opportunity. And Greg has been remarkably generous, both as a patron <laughs> for, for 13 years, uh, but also in allowing other people to participate in this. Um, that's exciting. Now, what gives you trepidation is you go, you're also assuming a lot of risk because you're going, hey, it was nice the way it was. And it looked really good. I don't think anything was wrong with that. But to take a step back and say, hey, what's really interesting is if we really continue to plant seeds for the future um, and move in that direction. Uh, so that's the part that excites me the most is what will the sport look like in five years? So, you know, maybe Matt and Tia are continuing to compete five years now at the same level. If history repeats itself, you know, they will have, you know, they'll have a, a lifespan or a curve, you know, in their careers. And there will be a new class of athletes in two, three, five, seven years. Um, where will those new athletes be coming from? You know, I'm excited about what I see in France, you know, with their quality of competition. They have a lot of affiliates. They have a lot of participation in competition. And they're starting to produce top level athletes. Where will the other countries be? You know, what will Brazil and Argentina do, you know, in rivalry against each other, but with large groups of affiliates in South America? You know, what are going to be the hidden countries like Iceland that pop up and don't have giant populations of people, but they do have highly dedicated and, uh, you know, great culture to allow their individuals uh, to be really, really competitive on a global landscape. And with more media around the world able to capture that content and then us able to window that, um, I think it's interesting. So that those are the things that excite me. The scary part is to go, hey, it's different. And I get that it's different for everybody. Um, but the seeds that have been planted with patience, it's not, it's very believable for me to say, hey, if a couple of those things worked, that would be really cool. And if many of those things hit, that would be really cool. And there's also, uh, you know, a compounding effect where multiple hit at the same time or in succession, um, that it can be fun. But but that comes with risk. And if there's no risk, there's no, you know, real upside and CrossFit has been, um, you know, bold with taking some new risks. Justin Berg, thank you so much for joining us today. I got a lot out of this conversation. I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy it. And uh, I, I do really appreciate your time. This seems almost like a, a bit of a moot point asking, given a, a, what we were talking about a few questions ago, but where is the best place for people to keep up to date with the work you're doing or kind of maybe what goes on even behind the scenes of, of the CrossFit Games? Yeah, GameStopCrossFit.com is, you know, if you want to keep track for official scores and updates on where we're going, it's GameStopCrossFit.com and at CrossFit Games on Instagram and Facebook. Um, but go to the website. Sounds like an old thing to say, but we'll, we'll always be there. <laughs> yeah, it, do, it does sound a little weird to say. I normally ask that at the end of podcasts because it's, you know, an individual who has their Instagram account or, or yeah. something like that. But if it's what we're talking about for, you know, half of the broadcast, then it seems weird. But I, hey, I have to ask it at the end. But all that aside, I really do appreciate you uh, giving us your time and uh, really looking forward to what's in store for the 2020 CrossFit Games. Thanks for having me.